0: This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Alpine plants, those uniquely interesting individuals and communities that not only survive but thrive in the extreme conditions of high elevations around the globe, have a long history of attraction for plants, people, and gardeners the world over. Increasingly, they are ever more attractive to scientists and researchers, as well looking for indications of the complex effects of the climate crisis on our world's plant life, and looking for strategies that plants employ for greater resilience. For our fourth and final episode in this series exploring some of the varied and innovative work being done by native plant experts, enthusiasts, and organizations on the ground around the country, we go high to Denver, Colorado, to speak with Mike Kingen, plantsman, home gardener, and curator of alpine plants at the Denver Botanic Garden in Denver, Colorado. The Denver Botanic Gardens has one of the largest alpine collections in the country and is home to the Plant Collections Network Alpines of the World Collection. It's widely considered among the best alpine and rock garden collections in the world. Mentored by some of the best people in this world, including Denver Botanic Gardens' Paneody Kelides, Mike is an active and often leadership member of the North American Rock Garden Society and the American Penstemon Society. He regularly speaks on the Denver Botanic Gardens and its steppe and high elevation floras found in semi-arid regions around the world. Welcome, Mike.
1: Great. Thanks for having me, Jennifer.
0: So get us started with what your work is with plants, both professionally and personally. What What is your role at the Denver Botanic Garden? And what is your role in organizations such as the Penstemon Society? And I think there are others. And what is your home gardening practice, Mike?
1: I am the curator of alpine collections at Denver Botanic Gardens, I've officially been there for about 15 years now and unofficially this is my 27th year there. (laughs) I started volunteering there when I was 11 uh, with a neighbor. And I met Paniotti Kelades who was then over the rock alpine garden at that point in time. And we made a lasting friendship and I was bitten by alpine plants and rock gardening at that point. And so I pretty much just followed along and volunteered during the summers at Denver Botanic Gardens with Paniyoti and my neighbor Alice. I also joined the local Rock Garden Society at that point and the North American Rock Garden Society at that point. So I've been involved with both of those clubs for about 27 years now as well. So at Denver Botanic Gardens, I oversee... All aspects of the Alpine collection from deciding which plants are added, which plants we should try and go after and add, which plants we might deaccession or remove from the collection, uh, which plants maybe we need to bulk up the number that we have. And then anything kind of programmatic with the collection, such as interpretation, lecturing around the country and the world, some writing about it. We also, something that's a bit unique about Denver Botanic Gardens, we have a satellite site up on Mount Evans Mm -hmm. at 11,500 feet called Mount Goliath. That's a joint project with the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, It's public land, but Denver Botanic Gardens manages the garden around the visitor center. And that garden is strictly a garden of native plants and specifically seeds and cuttings that are collected on Mount Evans itself. We can't use germplasm from elsewhere. So I oversee that collection with the help of my colleague, Amy Schneider. I also oversee about seven other gardens. there, ranging from large annual displays to an Asiatic plant collection to a South African plant collection. So it's a pretty cool job. I get to completely immerse myself in all things plants from dahlias and petunias to saxifraga and and penstemon. It's it's definitely a dream job in that regard.
0: So before you move on to your discussion of some of the groups you're involved in, such as the North American Rock Garden Society and the Penstemon Society, first of all, would you give to listeners a definition of what an alpine plant is and then give a little bit of a description of the scope of the alpine collection at the DBG because it's one of the preeminent collections and has some of the top research in alpine flora in the country, I believe.
1: So a definition of an alpine plant is any plant that's found above tree line in any of the world's mountain ranges Uh, so that's the cut dry definition of course there are mountains that don't have forests so they don't have tree lines so it blurs a bit so it would be plants from higher elevations in those mountain ranges if they do go to a suitable elevation where you would have true alpine vegetation so it's both A very clear cut definition if you use tree line and a little more muddy if you have a mountain range like the Drakensberg in South Africa Mm -hmm. that doesn't have a tree line, but it definitely has an alpine flora on top. So they tend to be small mat forming cushion or shorter plants in general with large flowers. And those are adaptations to the harsher conditions that are found up there. They're trying to hunker down. Out of the wind, uh, stay a little bit warmer generally. They tend to have the larger flowers because they want to attract pollinators. So those are very specific adaptations to alpine plants. Mm -hmm. The collection at Denver Botanic Gardens right now numbers around 500 species of true alpine plants. So we've done some work over my tenure there of defining exactly what falls into the collection as true alpine So true alpine would be those plants that we talked about found above the world's tree lines or in a similar setting like in the Drakensberg. But we also have pseudo alpines, which are plants that look and behave like alpine plants, but are generally found in lower elevations, but maybe in a habitat that has conditions very similar to the alpine. So it could be cold and windy, maybe very dry Uh, So once again, they want to hunker down close to the earth. They tend to have large flowers because, once again, they're trying to attract pollinators. And then we threw something in there called chasmophytes, which are plants that drill in rock crevices. And there is actually a whole suite of plants out there in the world that are actually what we call obligate chasmophytes. So that means they only live in cracks, in crevices. They won't live anywhere else in the world. So that's what's in the alpine collection at Denver Botanic Gardens. And when you add the pseudo-alpines and the chasmophytes, you end up with probably closer to about 1,000, 1,200 species in the collection.
0: Wow. And that must be our uh, vocabulary word for the year right there, chasmophyte and obligate. Chasmophyte. I like that. When you're speaking of the plants that aren't true alpine plants, but that live in similar conditions at lower elevations, am I right in thinking those are the steppe plants?
1: They often are steppe plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yes, that's that's very true. You will find a lot of pseudo alpines in the four steps of the world. You can also find them outside of those steppe regions. There could be pseudo alpines even in tropical climates, believe it or not, you know, in a really exposed, like rocky sea cliff or something, you might find a plant that's mimicking alpine plants in growth habit.
0: Yeah. And one of the great things I think, uh, well, there's a couple of wonderful things. One is what a fantastic opportunity for research these particular plants provide for for all different kinds of reasons, not just the climate crisis, but uh, to do with just survival mechanisms and adaptations and pollination um, systems. The other thing that I love about these plants is what a fantastic relationship they have to gardeners who love them. Like there's such a long history of alpine rock gardening lovers – who live at elevations around the world trying to nurture and care for and uh, cultivate these plants. It's a, it's an amazing history of relationship.
1: Yeah, that's true. It goes back to the 1800s that we've been trying to cultivate alpine plants. It largely started in Europe, in places like Germany and England and Sweden and stuff like that with uh, the Industrial Revolution it was easier to get into the mountains. So often the wealthier classes kinda were exposed to these plants and the landscapes that these plants are in, which is equally as important because rock gardening is as much about the plants as it is about recreating the habitats and the landscapes that they're found in. So they were inspired by that and brought those ideas back to the lower elevations of England or Germany and started to try and recreate these environments and grow some of these plants, which can be pretty challenging outside of their native habitats, because they're so well adapted to what they what they need up there that they don't always translate well to a place like Denver that can have hot summers, or especially a place like Chicago or New York City, which are both hot and humid in the summer. Mm-hmm. You
0: started down this path at the age of eleven. Uh, But tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised. I'm guessing it was in Denver and how you came to be a person whose neighbor would say, hey, come with me to the Denver Botanic Garden and start volunteering.
1: Sure. So I was born in Inglewood, Colorado, a suburb of Denver. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was lucky enough. My parents have a home in the mountains about four hours northwest of Denver, so We built that house when I was about five. So from the age of five, I was exposed to fields of wildflowers, forest and alpine environments of the Southern Rockies. So I think that influenced me a lot, just being able to spend summers in that environment. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a typical suburban neighborhood in Littleton, Colorado, and it was a cul-de-sac and there just happened to be this fabulous garden at the end of the cul-de-sac so from a pretty young age, I would wander down to the end of the cul-de-sac whenever I could and stare at this amazing garden from the sidewalk. And it was cared for by a very kind and intelligent uh, lady. And one day she noticed me and invited, her, invited me into her backyard. And from there, we kind of struck up a relationship. She did all types of gardening She did rock gardening, she worked with native plants, she had an extensive vegetable garden, uh, beautiful perennial gardens. She had cottage-style gardens as well, which I think influenced a little bit of uh, what I do. Sometimes my home gardens are kind of described as a mix of rock gardening and cottage gardens. Mm -hmm. And she took me under her wing, I started working for her. She grew plants on the side, and also did uh, garden maintenance, Uh, to make a little extra money, so she would take me out into other private gardens here in the Denver metropolitan area, and eventually she's like, you should come to one of the rock garden meetings, and so at age 11, she took me. I was by far the youngest person. (laughs) I hesitate to say, but I think it's true. You know, I made a bit of a splash being an 11-year-old. I was very shy, actually, but they doted on me, and kind of everyone took me under their wing in that club and I got to meet a lot of great gardeners and see a lot of great gardens here in Colorado in that group. Mm -hmm. And this was Alice. Alice, correct. And tell me her whole name. Alice McBee and uh, she's from Arkansas originally. She's moved back to Arkansas. She's actually been gone from Colorado 21 years now, which is hard to believe. Yeah. And
0: so you began volunteering, and then did you go on to school before you started working full-time at the Denver Botanic Garden?
1: I completed a degree in landscape horticulture Mm -hmm. at Colorado State University. I also, between high school and college, I became a seasonal at Denver Botanic Gardens. So I worked there officially for the summer, just in the rock garden with Paniotti. So that was great. So instead of working one day a week, I was working there five days a week, 40 hours. So I got to see the whole garden all week long and truly see it through its best moments and also the most challenging moments of the week. And I went on after that to actually do an internship at Chicago Botanic Gardens. Mm -hmm. And then Rhododendron Species Foundation in Washington State, I did a curatorial internship there. And that was largely to kind of expand my experience. I love gardening here in Colorado, but I at that point in time I wanted to test the waters elsewhere. And I decided after that that Colorado is the place for me to garden, even though it's challenging in some aspects. I do like the plant palette that we can grow here.
0: Yeah. And so you ultimately come back to the Denver Botanic, and you you work in a a, like incredible range of garden spaces there, including the South African and the Alpine Collection. When you first described the Alpine Collection, you talked about evaluating what you should grow and um, what you should accession and deaccession. Describe the sort of mission of the Alpine Collection and the, the goals of the work the collection is doing, both as a display garden for visitors, but also as a research base in the field.
1: Okay, so there's a pretty wide range of missions and goals for the Alpine collection. I would kind of break them into the horticultural display side, and then more kind of the XC2 conservation side. So we'll start with the horticultural side first. Mainly, it's meant to, of course, be a beautiful garden year-round. So it does have a wide variety of plant material in there, not all of it's Alpine. All of it is native to rocky environments. Within that goal, I want color for as long of a period during the year as we can, because uh, the winters are cold here in Colorado. Uh, generally from about December to middle of February, we don't have much color outside. Things are pretty dormant. But that's the beauty of that garden is actually there are things like heathers, uh, dwarf irises, hellebores that will bloom during those quieter months here so we can actually say that that garden has flowers 12 months out of the year i try and do a lot of things with texture and evergreens as well in that garden just so even if things aren't in bloom that there's kind of this beautiful vignettes basically i try and make that garden a series of, of vignettes for the public within the horticultural side of things we're trying to show as many Uh, True alpines, chasmophytes, and pseudo-alpines as we can. And to make the public aware of of these plants, we do focus on things that do well in our climate. Uh, Maybe contrary to popular belief, Denver can have very hot summers. Uh, We average about 40 to 60 days above 90 degrees. Uh, The record was in 2012 when we had 72 days above 90 which was pretty stressful for the collection. So we try and keep those things in mind. There are some alpine plants that we just can't grow here. Mm. There are a fair number we can, and we use a lot of microclimates. Uh, We try and create cooler spots in the garden with shade and rock, and we do water. So with that, we are able to grow around 500 species of true alpines. Within that, we're we're showing the public basically what can be done as well in their own home garden. We grow some plants in troughs as well, both from a cultural standpoint because we can really manipulate soils, waters, uh, lighting in troughs. But also, troughs are a great way for people to grow alpine plants at home. Uh, maybe they don't have a yard. Maybe they have dogs. Um, you can do alpines in a in a trough on a balcony or uh, hopefully your dog won't jump in the in the trough if that's a challenge.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this week we're speaking about plants we love on high and dry. Those plants and species uniquely happy in Alpine and steppe environments. Mike Kinjin, curator of Alpine Plants at the Denver Botanic Garden in Denver, Colorado, is a home gardener in both Denver and Steamboat Springs. Today, he's sharing with us his knowledge and lifelong passion for these plants. Stay with us. Hey now love that there are botanic gardens and arboretums in the world, communal places designated for the appreciation of, learning about, and just spending a little time with plants in otherwise very human-centric spaces. It wasn't until I lived in a more urban environment for the first time, which was during high school for me, that I regularly went to such spaces. And it wasn't until I had lived for a time in New York City as a young adult that I became heartsick for green spaces. Heartsick and homesick, actually. I didn't even recognize the source of my sadness until I recognized that I felt better after being in green, even little bits of green. The likes of Central Park were good ideas for so many people on so many levels, When I was a mother of very little girls, the Denver Botanic Gardens were our go-to outing in Denver. We would all feel better just walking through the entrance. They'd be let loose from the stroller or pack, and I'd be let loose too. Breathing deeply, moving or running more freely, our eyes and lungs and hearts and heads were more relaxed almost immediately. I remember especially needed walks in early spring after a long snowy winter inside, walking with the girls under a beautiful old alley of flowering pink and white and cream crabapple trees in spring perhaps you live in a city, or have, and perhaps you have a public garden or arboretum or good public park, even a well-tended university campus or cemetery that is your personal green refuge and place of regeneration. As we head towards the end of summer, as students around the world return to dormitories and classrooms, and work schedules are perhaps intensifying again after summer breaks, Pay attention to this need in yourself and pay attention to it in those around you. And pay attention to those spaces that fill this need in you. Notice as well the people who make these spaces possible as communal sources of energy and light from legislators and voters who pass bonds to support botanic gardens or maintain protections for state and national parks and seashores, to the people working in them every day like Mike to make and keep them such beautiful and regenerative communal resources. Thank you to all of you who are in this work. These spaces mean more to us than you might know, than even we might know ourselves now, back to our conversation with Mike, alpine plant expert and advocate, helping to keep the world green for us all. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Mike Kinjan is curator of alpine plants at the Denver Botanic Gardens in Denver, Colorado, and he's sharing with us his work at the gardens. When we left off in our conversation, he was describing the extensive collections of alpine plants at the gardens, and as we come back, he is explaining some of the ex-situ conservation work on their behalf, in other words, conservation growing, saving seed, and trialing these plants outside of their native environments in order to inform how best to care for them in their native places.
1: Segwaying over to the more conservation, researchy side of what we do there, the garden is really more of a poster child for some of the work that's done behind the scenes. We can't grow enough alpine plants, enough individuals of a species within the garden to truly conserve uh, genetic diversity. Mm. That work is done through seed banking behind the scenes. But we like to try and connect what people are seeing in the garden. So maybe they're seeing Silenia callis which is a common alpine plant actually around the northern hemisphere. So hopefully they see, you know, with some interpretation, a Silenia collis in the garden. They know what it looks like now. And then we can talk a little bit about some of the work we're doing behind the scenes, maybe with seed banking. Or we're also in the research department at Denver Botanic Gardens, which is a separate department from the horticulture department, But uh, the alpine side of the Hort department has a very close relationship with our research department. They're actually working on a study looking at how long the seeds of alpine plants last Mm -hmm. in storage. They are doing some work in Europe where they have found that seeds of alpine plants don't always last as long as traditional temperate plants. So our research department is doing some work with Colorado's rare and endangered alpine plants to see how well they germinate, first of all. And then they're going to do an artificial aging experiment and try and actually age these seeds and see if they germinate as well. Now, tell me why that's important. So it's important because with climate change, alpine plants are predicted to be one of the hardest hit groups with what's going on not just from the actual physical warming and possibly losing some of their habitat some work has shown that as temperatures warm plants from lower elevations are moving up in elevation and these are taller growing plants so with the warmer temperatures things like larger shrubs are able to grow where perhaps only dwarf alpine plants that were two or three inches tall thrived. Now there's something, you know, that's three or four feet tall shading those plants out. So seed banking is thought to be one of the things that hopefully will save some of these plants should that happen. Of course, they need the proper habitat. Uh, So you know, if large shrubs are growing all the way to the top of the mountain, you're not going to be able to grow alpines in that spot anymore. There has been some talk about assisted migration with them. Will you? I have not. Will you define assisted migration for people? Sure, I'd be happy to. So, assisted migration is basically where you take an organism, you look at what conditions it it currently thrives in. And then through some computer modeling, and especially with predicted climate change, so looking at temperatures, precipitation, length of winter, all of those things that you have to take into consideration that allow an organism to survive. Mm -hmm. You do some modeling, and you see hopefully with uh, some certainty where maybe those conditions don't necessarily exist now, but maybe they'll exist in the future. And then people move that organism to those sites there has not been a tremendous amount of work done specifically with alpine plants they've done some work with pinus albicaulis the white bark pine yep because it's endangered through all kinds of things climate change diseases insects stuff like that so there was a little bit of assisted migration done with it moving it further north in canada it's still very inconclusive. I think they only monitored the, the population for three years after they uh, helped it migrate, so to say. One other thing to take into consideration, there are also papers that look at one part that makes alpine ecology and alpine environments so interesting is there are so many microclimates within the alpine environment around, around the world. So even on a one mountain range, uh, just if you have like a north-facing side or an east-facing slope, there's a lot of work looking at how those little microclimates are going to hopefully help alpine plants be okay uh because it may stay much colder on that north facing slope where maybe right now there's actually a, a snowfield or a glacier mm-hmm. but with global warming if that melts there's some thought that the plants may colonize that area that was once a snowfield or glacier hmm.
0: when you are thinking about your largest populations of alpine plants and the research being done on them. I think one, assisted migration is still fairly controversial as well because of human intervention with natural dynamics and we can't always see what we can't see. We, we can't know what, what will happen and what we will interfere with that might be trying to take care of itself to get started with. I think the other Element of this is that the alpine population is also an incredible opportunity for research on the, these serve as sort of sentinel plants and sentinel plant communities as to what we should should expect, what kinds of coping mechanisms um, both flora and faunal uh, communities will, will start to develop in response to changing conditions.
1: Exactly, yeah. Um, we are also working with Betty Ford Alpine Gardens right now on the North American Botanic Garden Strategy for Alpine Plant Conservation. Hmm. And with this whole uh, kind of project, we're looking at what are all the alpine plants first in North America? There actually, believe it or not, is not a set list yet of how many true alpine species there are in North America. Partially because of what we talked about at the beginning of the interview, that it's a little bit gray sometimes. Mm -hmm. That it's not always easy to define what's alpine and what's not. So we are trying to create a list of everything in Mexico North, that could be considered a true alpine plant. And then we're going in and looking at where are these plants native? How large is the population? What kind of protection is over the areas that these plants live in? And of course, it ranges from absolutely no protection to being deep within a wilderness area where sometimes it's a specific research area and it's you know, off-limits to the general public. So there's all kinds of levels of protection and no protection. So we're trying to kind of amass all of that and then set steps to start seed banking and doing some ex-situ conservation with this. Why also doing some of that work that I talked about on the horticultural side, where maybe we do display some of these cute, beautiful plants for the public to see so that they have the actual physical thing in front of, in front of them mm-hmm. and they can see like, oh, okay, so this little plant, like we'll use Silenia collis again, it's only an inch tall in full flower and maybe six or eight inches across when it's full grown. But it matters for these various reasons that it's an important part of an ecosystem And if this ecosystem completely disappears, we're losing – in Colorado, if the alpine was to completely disappear, we'd lose between 300 and 400 of our native plant species out of about 3,000 native plant species. So a little over 10% of our flora would theoretically go extinct. I don't think that that's going to happen, hopefully, but uh, that would be a sizable – number yeah of things and uh, along with the organisms that are involved with those plants such as insects mammals birds um, would also probably go with those plants so it's hard to say truly how much we would lose you know from our native flora fauna and insects within the state
0: I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this week we're speaking with plantsman and alpine and steppe plant expert and enthusiast Mike Kinjan of the Denver Botanic Gardens. We'll be right back with more about some of the specific plants of these places and some of the societies which are dedicated to them. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud here, here's the image from this conversation that's really staying with me. Mike as a young boy, maybe seven years old I think he said, who wanders down his cul-de-sac and is compelled by and happy in the sight of his neighbor Alice's front garden. Her flowers, the trees, the patterns and colors, the seasonal shifts. I know, I'm always going on about the power of our gardens in this world. My belief in their, and our, ability to affect positive change in our families, our communities, our economies, and our culture, through this activity and relationship we ourselves are called to. The journey of young Mike, standing there falling in love with Alice's garden, Then going on to join the Rock Garden Society and volunteer at the Denver Botanic Gardens, being mentored by one of the world's great alpine plantsmen, Panayode, and in turn becoming a leading plantsman himself, and mentoring, modeling to, and teaching thousands of others through his passion. Well, there isn't a better example than this as to the ripple effects of our own gardens and our own proactive welcoming of the whole world in whatever way might move us into our gardens of beauty and life this is a ripple effect to have such faith in enduring faith keep gardening it's important Now, back to our conversation with Mike Kinchin of the Denver Botanic Gardens, working to improve awareness and conservation and downright love of the alpine and steppe plants of our world, in the U.S. West and beyond, one ripple at a time. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Mike Kinjan is the curator of alpine plants at the Denver Botanic Gardens in Denver, Colorado. He's been at the garden since being a volunteer as a young boy. He's deeply familiar with the extensive collections in the entire garden. When we left off, he'd described some of the concerns with understanding the life of the alpine zones in the world because they're some of the first and likely most endangered by the ongoing climate change crisis. As we come back, he shares more about some of the groups working to raise awareness and protections for alpine and steppe plants, including the North American Rock Garden Society and the American Penstemon Society.
1: So the genus Penstemon is a pretty cool genus because it's largely endemic to North America. There's a whole kind of suite of genera that are actually very specific to North America, from the time when it broke away from the rest of Eurasia here in the Northern hemisphere. And we developed things like penstemon, calicortis, uh, the heucheras, the areognums. Some of our most uh, charismatic Western plants actually belong to those genera that are largely specific to North America. So within penstemon itself, there's about 250 plus species found from Alaska down into Guatemala. For us here in Colorado, what's kind of special is that the epicenter of the genus, so the highest diversity, is actually just across the border in Utah. Hmm. Utah has about 80 species of pentstemon, and they're actually describing a new species about every couple of years from Utah still. Colorado has about 60 some species and there have been one or two new species uh, named here in the last five or six years. So that's one other thing that's kind of cool about that genus is it's rapidly speciating because of the diversity of habitats here in the American West. Mm. And basically through geographic isolation, they develop into new species, not at the rate that humans can can see it, but definitely at a pretty fast rate compared to some other organisms.
0: Give us an example of that. So when you say speciating, and and you did go on to to gloss that, you mean that new species are coming into existence all the time through through crossing, I'm guessing, with each other, and talk more about that. And and when you say it's happening at a relatively rapid rate, compared with other organisms. what Give us a number. What does that mean?
1: So they are basically speciating through geographic isolation. Uh, They may end up in a slightly different habitat and that population gets cut off. And they start crossing in amongst themselves and through enough time, they evolve into basically a new species. Or you may see in some... Uh, groups, you can see that there's basically a species for every elevation Uh. or or habitat. It's hard to say truly how fast they're speciating, because I don't think anyone's actually looked at that yet. And I think what's allowing them to do it a little more rapidly than some other uh, genera or organisms is just, once again, there's still... Some very interesting niches that haven't been filled in the American West. So there's a Petsman here in Colorado that's pretty highly endangered. It's not actually on the endangered species list, to my knowledge, but it only lives on steep cliffs of oil-rich shale. So it's kind of interesting when you think about it. How did this plant? evolve to that specific habitat. And, and why did it, you know, it's probably more because there was nothing living there. And it was a great place to end up because in general, penstemons don't like competition. Mm. They are really poor competitors. Uh, Of course, as I tell people, uh, there's always exceptions to the rules. So there are pensimens that live in uh, densely vegetated meadows. uh, But in general, most of them are don't play that well with others, you could say. They like to be kind of out uh, in the sun by themselves. There's another species here in Colorado that only grows on soil that is very rich in selenium. Mm. It doesn't actually need selenium. You can grow it in the garden uh, without selenium, and it's a fine garden plant. But the theory is, is that it evolved to live on those soils because, once again, there weren't many other plants living there. And so it filled that niche.
0: So they become a distinct species because they are, as you described it, geographically isolated. They they get to a remote area by some mechanism, whether that be animal seed dispersal or wind seed dispersal or something, and then they get sort of cut off and then they adapt over a long period of time to that distinct environment like the oil-rich shale or maybe the penstemons in California might uh, evolve over time to be dependent upon the serpentine but I think it's also called serpentinite. Is that right?
1: That's correct, yes.
0: Yeah, and and I think we have several specialists, and the diversity of penstemon in California is also quite high and, again, has that same characteristic of having been, you know, different groups got isolated and then evolved separately than their sister organisms from way back. Is that right?
1: That's exactly correct.
0: Okay. And the penstemons are are interesting I think one because as you already noted they are so charismatic they are wonderful uh you know additions to the garden and adaptable to a garden in ways that some other alpine and or western plants don't love being moved into a garden setting. Um, and they have fantastic relationships with uh, the, the fauna. So some specialist bees and some specialist wasps and the hummingbirds love them and the butterflies love them. So they kind of, they're this wonderful kind of super child of of both our wild environments and our garden environments.
1: Yeah, that's very true. Almost all the species take pretty easily to garden conditions. They may not always live very long, but they don't even live that long sometimes in their native habitats. Mm -hmm. And they photograph well, they're showy. Uh, I think they're easy to wrap one's head around uh, so the public can relate to them. Buckwheats, the areogonums, yes. there's also a society for them. Yeah. They're just as great of plants, but for some reason, they're not quite as charismatic as the pensamins. So I think Pensimans with that charisma, like you said, the different pollinators, you know, who doesn't like hummingbirds and butterflies in the garden. And of course, we know how important the native bees are and other pollinators. So it's kind of a win-win situation with um
0: Yes, it is a it is a win-win. The talk about the importance. So I have interviewed in the past the Areogonum Society. We have in California as well, just a great, fantastic diversity of uh, the buckwheats, and I find them almost as charismatic as the Penstemons. But talk about the importance of societies like this existing and and the work that they're doing, both uh, engaging on the scientific side and engaging on the public awareness and uh, advocacy side?
1: Sure, that's that's a great thing to talk about. So the Pennsylvania Society, I think, is one of the best for that. The meetings are some of the funner meetings I've I've gone to over the years, because it's a true mix of literally there's the researchers from universities working on penstemon genetics, penstemon pollination strategies. They come to these meetings, BLM and national forest land managers and botanists come to these meetings. So we have that side. And then we also get people like me who work in a botanic garden and just the gardeners that love growing pentstemons in their garden. So I really love kind of that for lack of a better term, and maybe it's a little cheesy, but that cross fertilization mm-hmm. between the people that are doing academic research on penstemons, the people that are trying to preserve their habitat in the wild, and then the gardeners that just love growing penstemons for the sake of them being such beautiful plants. Those meetings are really pretty enjoyable because you get all different aspects of people who are interested in penstemons. The other thing that a lot of these societies do is the excess money that they raise. They often go to support graduate studies or additional research work on those genera such as penstemon or areognum, or the Rock Garden Society will give grants to support research or conservation on alpine plants here in North America. In addition, they do a lot of um, education to the public through their newsletters, their meetings, uh, items like that, I think help raise the awareness of these groups of plants and also the importance to preserve the habitats that these plants are found in. Mm
0: -hmm. When you think about things in the world right now, like just horticultural literacy and trying to keep it increase it, deepen it with the general public. When when we talk about issues like plant blindness in the world, I mean, you know, in the West, people are hiking all the time and they may not know, they, they may not notice a plant, let alone know that it's a penstemon. And there's something there that connecting people with the plants of their place and the, the names of those plants, it connects you and it, it brings you into a relationship in which you then want to steward more carefully and and more consistently, I think. Do, do you find that?
1: I do. And especially uh, here in Colorado, it's growing like all Western states. More and more people are moving here from elsewhere in the country. And I think a lot of them are moving here because it is such a beautiful state uh, to live in. And so they're coming here for the quality of life, hopefully. They often like to hike, but maybe they didn't necessarily think about the plants they were hiking past uh, back in, on the East Coast or in the Midwest. And then hopefully here through the work we do at the Botanic Gardens, uh, maybe some of the work we do through the Rock Garden Society or Penceman Society, they become aware that a lot of these plants that we are hiking past are specific to these environments, and some of them are actually incredibly endangered and you know they might only grow in a very small area that one pensman that grows on the selenium rich soils actually lives on only about two square miles and nowhere else on earth and so you know if you built a strip mall or drilled that for oil or gas it would have a giant impact on that species i think one of the most exciting things that I've been able to do through the Pensaman Society is I've hosted two meetings in the last uh, 10 years here in Colorado, and it's kind of interesting that some of our best Pennsylvania sites are around towns that are not tourist attractions. And I like hosting a meeting there for a couple reasons. It gives those towns a little bit of an economic boost, so to say, by having our conference there. But it also has been helpful when I hosted it in Craig in 2010, we met with the Chamber of Commerce and they were like, wait, there's wildflowers around Craig, Colorado, <laughs> because it's dry step. Right. And so most people think of, you know, like Crested Butte or Breckenridge or Steamboat Springs for wildflowers. And we were like, well, yes, earlier in the season, uh, May, June, Actually, there's some fabulous wildflowers here around Craig, a lot of stuff that you won't see elsewhere in Colorado or in some cases elsewhere in the world. So you guys actually have something else that you can market to attract tourists, specifically in your off season, because Craig's a big hunting uh, location in the fall, but no one thinks about going to Craig really in May, June for wildflowers. And so we helped, we did a small uh, display in the BLM office there of the, the local wildflowers. And then just this past uh, June, we hosted it in Walden, which is largely our ranching community. And once again, it has a spectacular flora in May, June, first part of July in the steppe. There, it's one of my favorite places to go, and so I think giving residents a little bit of a reason to truly enjoy these steppe environments—you know, normally they're looked at as being dry and filled with sagebrush and antelope—but uh, there's so much more to them, and so. I can see a little bit of pride even in the residents when we go to these towns that, oh, wow, there's actually, you know, we should be proud of of what surrounds our town. And I hope that eventually that translates to a little bit of a a fight to help protect those areas, because clearly there's no one better able to protect the areas uh, than those people whose backyard it actually is.
0: Yeah. The Walden Valley is one of the most beautiful valleys in the world if you were to ask my opinion and um the the watershed in there and the wildlife to say nothing of the um the wildflowers in in the area. And I I agree with you like to to show people what they have and have them see it as incredibly valuable to someone who does not live there makes them see it in a whole new way. Exactly. If you were to, you know, I, we have listeners from all over the world, Mike. But if you were to say, here are three or four alpines that I love and I think you should, you you could try in your home garden, whether it's in a, a specialized, you know, sharply draining trough or uh, in the ground itself, or or two or three penstemons, What what would come to mind for you as like your favorites?
1: Sure, that's really hard. That's like, you know, asking a parent,
0: <laughs> Especially <laughs>
1: given your collections, but do your best. Sure. So one thing that springs to mind immediately are actually hens and chicks, semper vivum. Mm. What a lot of people don't realize is they are actually uh, largely alpine plants native to the Alps and the Balkans. So, you know, there's a plant that's right under our nose, uh, kind of often treated as very common and pedestrian, but most of them have alpine roots. So, hands down, I would recommend hens and chicks, Simpervivum. They're so beautiful. They're so easygoing. There's so many hybrids now with different colors.
0: Why do you love these
1: particular plants so well? Number one, they're very cute, for lack of a better phrase. A friend of mine described them as the puppies and kittens of the plant world. And I, (laughs) you know, that's very apt. You can't argue with that. But I think deep down, they remind me of these beautiful mountain habitats that they live in. So even on a day when I haven't been to the mountains in, you know, several weeks, I can be in the garden at work and I can see like Gentiana callis, which I mentioned, or a penstemon. And it immediately takes me back to time in the Alps or times out in the steppe of Western North America. And also they remind me of, of, as I mentioned, how important these environments are and that it's really the responsibility of all of us to help steward these so that generations of people can enjoy them.
0: Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It was wonderful to hear your, your knowledge and your enthusiasm with the alpine plants of our
1: world. Great, it was wonderful to chat with you and thank you for having me.
0: Mike Kinchin is a plantsman a high-elevation home gardener, and the curator of alpine plants at the Denver Botanic Gardens in Denver, Colorado. The DBG, as it is known, is widely considered among the best alpine and rock garden collections in the world. Join us again next week as the conversations continue with a best of cultivating place. As we begin to enter a rich season of seeds in our wildlands and gardens, we revisit our rich conversation with plantswoman, gardener, mother, and seed keeper, Rowan White. Join us. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. On the CultivatingPlace.com website this week, learn more about Mike's work at the Denver Botanic Gardens and their alpine collection, as well more about and links to the work of the American Penstemon Society, the North American Rock Garden Society, and the North American Botanic Garden Strategy for Alpine Plant Conservation, which is a collaborative effort of the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens in Vail, Colorado, and the DBG. You'll also find fabulous photos of these often petite plants with enormous personalities. Find it all at cultivatingplace.com. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.